You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. In 2013, Derek, who's one of our worship leaders here, he'll be helping us with music in the second service. Derek and I did a Tough Mudder in St. Louis. And a Tough Mudder is a race that you run 10 miles and you go through 20 obstacles. And that's really the only description that they give you. There's going to be 10 miles, 20 obstacles, and a lot of mud. And they don't really tell you what the obstacles are going to be, what kind of obstacles, until one week before. And so as we get closer to the Tough Mudder, I was constantly checking the website to see if they had released the list of obstacles because I wanted to know what it was that I was going to face. Because I was kind of worried that I was in over my head. I was kind of worried that I wasn't going to be up to the challenge of all of these obstacles. Now, I ran a few others after that, and when I ran those, I knew I was in over my head, so I wasn't as worried. But those first, that first one, I really wanted to know what obstacles are coming so that I can know what it is that I need to prepare for, so I can be ready for what's coming. Now, when we are young, when we're just getting out on our own, we're just getting started, we don't really think about the obstacles that are ahead because we think, I got this covered. We don't, we don't think that we're in over our heads. But when the moment comes, when that first big bill comes, we've moved out on our own and that first gas bill comes, and we're like, it costs this much to heat your house? Or it costs this much for there to be sewage hooked up to your house? We start to, like, what else is coming? What else is going to show up in the mailbox that I have to pay for and when we have that little bit of a sense that we're in over our heads, we start to wonder, what else is coming? What else should I be expecting? And the truth is that for all of us, there are obstacles that none of us ever expect, but almost all of us are eventually going to experience, we're going to face. And that's what this series of messages is about. It's about didn't see it coming. It's about the, the obstacles that all of us face, but we didn't expect, we didn't see coming. And so over the next five weeks, we're going to talk about each of these obstacles. And today we're talking about loneliness, but we're going to cover the obstacle of of burnout. And that's that's just when you're like just done. Next week, we're going to talk about cynicism. And I read several books uh, last year. And this this book, Didn't See It Coming, written by Carrie Newhoff, was the book that just really spoke to me personally. Because it spoke to all of these issues that I hadn't expected, but I ended up facing. I ended up having to overcome And cynicism, the one that we're going to talk about next week, was the one that really spoke to me personally. You're like, you you struggle with cynicism? Aren't you a pastor? Don't you really need to kind of believe? Well, cynicism kind of sneaks in because you get to the place where you don't trust people or you don't believe in people. And that's what cynicism looks like. And so I'm going to talk to you about that next week, about how cynicism can creep in. And we don't even really realize that we're struggling with it, but it's this difficult thing that we experience. We're also going to talk about insecurity, which is really pride with a different mask on. And all of these obstacles that we experience, we don't expect to face them, but we all end up experiencing them. And because of that, Scripture has tackled each one of them. So it's not going to be five weeks of, let's talk about these horrible things that we all have to go through. But rather, it's going to be, let's find the truth of God's Word and how it applies to each one of these issues. And the first obstacle that I want us to talk about this morning is loneliness or disconnection. And the reason that I chose that as the first one I wanted to tackle is because I feel like it is an absolute epidemic in our culture right now. 
And I want to share with you a couple of statistics. Maybe you saw in the news that just this past year, the UK in Britain, they established a new office in their government. And in their government, someone who's a director of something is a minister. So the director of finance would be the minister of finance. And they, they established a new government office called the Minister of Loneliness because they, they felt that there are so many people dealing with loneliness. And what they found is that in the UK, in Great Britain, there are 200,000 senior citizens that have not had a face-to-face interaction with someone in 30 days. Now, we have all of these tools at our disposal that we can order in food and we can order in whatever things that we need, but because of that, we are in a place where there's less and less face-to-face interaction. Another study found that 50% of people say that they feel alone or left out, either sometimes or all of the time. That half of us feel like we're left out. And there's a, a, a new term, FOMO, which is you have a fear of missing out. And social media gives us this FOMO when we look and we're like, hey, all of my friends are eating together at this restaurant. I wonder why they didn't invite me. Maybe they're all planning my surprise party or something. <laughs> we all have this, like, am I being left out? of people say no one really knows them well. And 40% of people say that none of their relationships are meaningful. Now, I want you to think about those two stats. 54% of people say no one really knows them well, and 40% of people say that none of their relationships are meaningful. How many people in that group are parents or spouses, and they feel like that their spouse or their child doesn't really know them well? or that they don't have a significant relationship with their family, much less their friends or their coworkers. Now, there are people that are pointing out that this is coming about as we have this digital revolution and we're all carrying smartphones around in our pockets and because we have these phones that keep us connected to the world. And if you look at the generations that are experiencing the most loneliness, they are the generations that are the most connected. So Generation Z, that's the generation that's currently finishing up high school and going into college. They are the most connected to digital devices of any generation, but they're also the loneliest. And as you make your way up, as you get older in each generation, you get to the millennials or the generation just above me, they are less and less digitally connected and they're more and more socially connected. And so because of that, people are saying, well, the reason that we're experiencing so much loneliness is because of the digital revolution. It's because of social media. It's because of technology. I I want you to maybe push back on that idea a little bit. Because the truth is, is that while technology has given us the opportunity, given us the ability uh, to, to isolate ourselves, that's not really the problem. We have a human nature problem. And technology is just helping us or escalating our ability to isolate ourselves. I want to show you a picture from some time ago. Everybody on a train um, reading their phones. No, they're reading newspapers, right? And instead of talking and having conversation, right? Now, some people would look at that picture and they would say, oh, well, they're just reading up on the news so they can have conversations with the people at work and they can talk about the things that are happening in the news right now. And there's a little bit of that aspect of right now, everyone's looking at their phones, but none of us are reading the same thing. We're all reading the thing that we find interesting. We're looking at a Facebook feed that is tailored to us by an algorithm to show us the things that we find engaging. 
And so even when we are all looking at something, we're not looking at the same thing. Right now, the most popular television show on TV, which is The Walking Dead, is only seen by 3% of the country. So that means if you watch the most popular show on television, you'd have to talk to 100 people to find three that have watched the same show. Now, it used to be that the biggest show was seen by half of the world or half of the country. And so when you went to work, everybody talked about what happened on Green Acres last night. Or... <laughs> but because we have all of these different things to look at, we're able to serve ourselves what it is that we find interesting or what we find engaging. And so technology is making it possible for us to spend more time isolated, spend more time looking at what we only are interested in, and it's escalating our ability to isolate ourselves. But the real problem is something deep within us. Because if you open your Bible and you read just three chapters, you find that God creates this beautiful world of paradise. He creates people who are in perfect harmony with one another, and then suddenly everything changes, and they're blaming one another, and they're hiding and they're ashamed because sin entered into the picture. And so sin is the root problem. Sin is what drives us to loneliness and isolation. Technology is just making it possible for us to become more isolated. So technology isn't evil, but if we use it for selfish or evil purposes, it'll bring about evil results. Let me try to give you an analogy, all right? Uh, if your kids are sick, it's probably not a good idea to use the same straw as them, right? Because those germs are going to easily transfer from them to you, okay? But that doesn't mean ban straws forever, right? It just means you should be careful whose straw you use. You should be careful who you share a straw with, right? Kissing is also a way that you transfer a lot of germs. But I don't want to ban kissing, all right? Because I'm kind of a fan of it, right? But I'd encourage you to be careful who you're kissing, and technology can be dangerous, so let's be sure that we use it for good reasons. Let's use it for reasons that help us connect with other people, build community. The way that we overcome sickness is we deal with germs. And the way that we overcome loneliness is not to do away with technology, it's to deal with the germs. What's going on inside of us, what makes us sick. And that's what James is talking about in the end of his letter to believers. In James chapter 5, and starting in verse 13, he says this to them, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing songs. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It accomplishes much. And then it begins to tell us about Elijah, who was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed, and God did the miraculous. Now, this was originally written in the Greek, and it's been translated into English for us. And originally, the word that he uses there, are any of you afflicted, it means are any of you struggling, are any of you dealing with difficulty? Now, if I asked you to raise your hand this morning if you're sick, probably someone you would say, well, I'm, I'm kind of sick, 
hopefully a whole bunch of people wouldn't raise their hands because why are you here, right? You're going to get the rest of us sick. But maybe if you're coming down with a cold or you're just fighting something, I'd be saying, yeah, I'm sick. But if I said, are any of you struggling this morning? If we're honest, I think that probably all of us could raise our hands. And when he wrote this, he does speak about those that are sick who are dealing with a physical ailment, who are dealing with some type of disease. But he's also talking about those that are struggling or those that are weak. Are you weak this morning? Are you dealing with hardship this morning? Are you facing difficulty this morning? He says, if so, confess your faults one to another. Now, we like this passage, especially those of us who believe in prayer and believe that the power of prayer can heal those that are sick. And we talk about this passage often, we refer to it often, but we don't talk about that portion that says, if anyone's struggling, confess your faults one to another. You know how I know this to be true? When we have times here at church that we say, does anybody have any prayer requests? Everyone is quick to raise their hand and mention their second cousin, twice removed, brother-in-law's co-worker who sprained his ankle. Because it's easy to talk about somebody else who's sick rather than talk about our own struggles. It's less often, less common for us to raise our hand and say, would you guys just pray with me? I'm, I'm really struggling with this temptation. I'm really struggling with this discouragement. You know why it's harder to do that? Because we would all rather observe other people's problems than take ownership of our own problems. I mean, who wouldn't, right? It's a whole lot more fun to watch somebody else that's maybe struggling than think about our own struggles. I've got a, a ministry colleague that I call every so often. I, I get advice from him, and he's a mentor. And I've called on him quite a bit as we've tried to raise up teams and volunteers to get prepared for this event of going to two services. And so I'd call him, I'd talk to him about when he made the same transition at his church, when they had run out of space and their, their congregation, their sanctuary, and they had to go to two services. And, and I was talking about it, and he just mentioned offhand that they were about to start their fourth service. I was just like baffled. They were about to start their fourth service. So I had all these questions that really didn't have to do with our context, but they had to do with his context. And so I'm peppering him with these questions. Well, what are you guys doing about this? And how are you handling that? And he said, all right, stop. The purpose of this phone call is for me to make you think about your problems, not for you to make me think about my problems. <laughs> and we'd rather talk to someone about their problems than talk about our own problems. We'd rather talk to someone about someone else's problems than to talk about our problems. Because we'd rather observe someone else's problems than take ownership of our own problems. But what James tells them here, he's saying, confess your faults to one another. And to confess them is to take ownership of them. It's to say, hey, this is something I'm struggling with. This is something I'm dealing with. And when we confess faults, we need to be really clear on the difference between confession and excuses, reasons, or self-justifications. All right, We use excuses to give ourselves a pass for what happened in the past. We use reasons to give ourselves a past for what's happening right now. Well, the reason I did that was because so-and-so did that. The reason that I did that is because, well, so-and-so said this. Those are excuses. Reasons are when we talk about the things that we're doing now, and we, well, these are the reasons I had to do that. These are the reasons that I was just kind of trapped and I had to do that thing. 
And then self-justification is how we give ourselves a pass for the future. We justify what it is that we are doing so we can continue to do it. And making excuses and listing off reasons leads to self-justification, and self-justification leads to continuing to do the same things again and again. Now, there's value in finding why you do the things that you do, right? How many of you have ever had that moment where you look in the mirror and you're like, why are you this way? Why do I, why do, I do that? How many of you looked at your bank statement and were like, why did I spend that money? Why am I this way? And there's value in figuring out why you are the way that you are. But there's a difference between finding an explanation and finding an excuse. Because uncovering the root issue of your, of your problems is getting an explanation. And once you've got an excuse, you'll start rationalizing. But once you've got an explanation, you can start healing. You can start making progress. When you figure out why it is that you get so angry so quickly, when you figure out why it is that you have a hard time committing, when you figure out why it is that you have a hard time trusting people, when you've got an explanation, you can deal with it. But if all you have are excuses... You can continue in it. One of the hardest things for me as a pastor is when someone in our congregation is sick and they go to the doctor and the doctors just don't know what's going on with them. And they go to test after test and they have scan after scan and they just can't figure out what's going on. And it gets to a place where they they just want to know what it is. They would just be so happy to know what is going on. Why am I feeling this way? Why am I experiencing this? Because if they know, if they have an explanation, they can get some prescription for treatment and healing. That's the reason that we go to the doctor and we have all these scans done, right? Now imagine if you went to the doctor because your arm's not working right and they take an x-ray and they say, hey, that's the reason that your arm is not working. It's broken. And these two bones right here, that's the reason it won't work. And you're like, okay, well now I have an excuse to give my boss and so I'm good, thanks. And you walk away and every time your boss asks you to do something, you're like, sorry, Broken arm, can't, can't do that. That's not very helpful. You're like, hey, I might do that to get out of some work. But once you have an explanation of what's wrong, and then it can be treated, it can be healed, it can be fixed. When we have an idea of what it is that's going on in us, and we know our faults that we need to confess, we can make some progress. And there is something so satisfying about figuring something out about yourself, isn't there? When you finally figure out, this is the way, this is the reason I am the way that I am. This is the reason I do that. In Growth Track, we try to help people figure out their personality type and their spiritual gifts, what it is that God has given them the ability to do so they can fit with the mission of the church. We do a personality assessment, we do a spiritual gifts assessment, and whenever we do those assessments, there's always somebody that looks at it and they go, that just makes sense, right? And it's just really satisfying to them to figure something out about themselves that maybe they kind of knew, but they'd never really discovered. Now, it's a pleasant experience because growth track is about finding what's right with you. It can be less pleasant when we find out what's wrong with us. But when we have that explanation, we can begin to heal. James says, confess your faults to one another. And once you've named it, you can treat it or rationalize it, but you can't do both. And so you can figure out what's going on, and then you can begin to experience healing. And here's what's beautiful about Christian community. What James is talking about here, confessing your faults one to another. In the context of Christian community, confession leads to mercy and grace and acceptance 
and transformation. And that's the reason that James is saying, confess your faults to one another. And the phrase he uses is this phrase that happens again and again throughout the New Testament, where we're told to love one another, to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens. And this phrase of one another is in the context of Christian community and how we care for one another. And when you are in a Christian community and you say, hey, this is something that I'm struggling with, you are shown grace and mercy and encouragement and you're able to experience the transformation that the Lord offers. We just launched uh, community groups and it's been so moving to see as we talk about the things that we have discussed in the message the Sunday before to see people say like, yeah, this is something that I'm struggling with. This, this part of the message really struck me and there to be this acceptance and love which leads to transformation. And James is telling them here that that's what's supposed to happen. In fact, down in verse 19, he says, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converted the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. Scripture encourages us to welcome and accept sinners, but also we're commanded to go and find sinners. And if God commanded us to go and find those that are broken, those that have erred from the truth, why would we run off any that come and confess their brokenness? James says, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Not that you may be punished. Not that you may be ostracized. Not that you may be judged. But that you may be healed that you may be healed. That's what God's called us to do. That's what God's called us to be. He's called us to be a group, a community, where people can confess their struggles, their faults, their sins, and they can be healed. They can experience transformation and grace. Now, here's the thing. This takes time. It takes time. It takes time to develop relationships and to grow closer to one another and to feel comfortable to talk about the issues that we're dealing with, that we're struggling with. It, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And relationships take time. And I think the real reason that we struggle so much with loneliness in this culture, in this context, is not just because technology, but because we just don't take time anymore. And relationships and acceptance and love take time. Uh, in the book, uh, Didn't See It Coming, Carrie Newhoff says, love has a speed, and it's slower than you are. And for us to develop strong relationships, and for us to open up, it takes time. Spending time with one another. Nicole and I, uh, my wife and I, just watched uh, a documentary about Mr. Rogers' I want you to be in my neighbor. How many of you grew up watching Mr. Rogers, right? There's this part in the documentary where they talk about Mr. Rogers was watching what was really popular on children's television, and he noticed that just every second it was like jumping to a new scene, a new color, there was some action. And so when Mr. Rogers started his show, he did the exact opposite, right? I mean, what's the beginning of every episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? He comes in, he takes off his coat, and he hangs it up, and he takes a cardigan out, and he puts it on, right? He goes and he sits down, and he takes off his shoes, and he slips on 
his inside shoes, right? Throws one to the other hand, right? And, and I've described it much faster than he does it, and it's felt too long, right? <laughs> they showed in the documentary there was actually one scene on one of the episodes of Mr. Rogers that he said, have you ever wondered how long a minute is? And he pulled out an egg timer and he turned it to one minute and just held it there for an entire minute while it counted down, just looking at the camera like, this is a minute. <laughs> and the, the speed that he went at was, in, was intentional, it was on purpose, because he wanted children to feel that they had a relationship with him and that they were loved. And probably the most moving part of that whole documentary, it's about this little boy who's, who's very sick, he's in a wheelchair, and he's going to um, have this major surgery. And his parents say, you know, before this major surgery, what do you, what do you want to do? What's something special you want to do? And he says, I want to meet Mr. Rogers. And so they write into Mr. Rogers that their son's very sick. He's going to have a surgery. He would love to meet you. And he says, come up. And they think we're going to go in and, you know, just meet him while he's in between takes or something. And he says, no, I, we're going to actually do a show together. And you, you be, sit, sit right here, and I'm going to come out, and um, we'll talk, and maybe we'll sing a song. And I mean, that's how much planning went into it. And he came out and he asked the boy about how he was doing, and he talked to him about his wheelchair, and he's just being very slow and taking time. And then he starts that song that Mr. Rogers sang, you know, what I like about you is you. And the boy started singing with him. And towards the end of Mr. Rogers' life, there was a tribute to his life, and that, that boy, now a man, comes rolling out in his wheelchair what Mr. Rogers did is he took time to build relationships, and he understood that love has a speed, and it's slower than we are. You say, okay, um, that's all great, but I kind of need some help now, because I'm struggling now. Love has a speed, and it takes time, but thankfully, the transformation and the grace of Jesus is something you can experience now. Something you can experience right now. There's progressive healing and restoration in Christian community, but there's instantaneous forgiveness in the name of Jesus. And that's what James says here. He's saying, you will be made well in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And I love that at the very end of this, it's encouraging us to pray for one another, and it tells us in verse 17, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And that's just the Bible's way of telling us that Elijah was a guy just like you and me. That he was, he was normal. In fact, the Bible tells us about one time that Elijah got so discouraged and so upset that he ran away from what God called him to do, and he finally said, God, just kill me. I am done. I don't want to do this anymore. He was over it. At another point, he said, God, I'm the only person that's doing the right thing. He felt completely alone and completely discouraged. And God said, Elijah, you're not alone. And this passage tells us that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then it tells us about Elijah, who was like us, but he's the example of the righteous man who can pray. Why was Elijah righteous? It wasn't because he was perfect. It was because he trusted in God, and God made him righteous. 
and there's restoration and Christian community, and we can be made right in the name of Jesus. And that restoration and that community takes time, but you can have his love and his acceptance and his grace right now. If you would just take a moment and let's enter into a, a spirit of prayer. I'd like for you to just think in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own life. Has there ever been a moment where you placed your faith in Christ? Has there been a moment where he took your imperfect, imperfect, broken life and made you righteous? Just like Elijah was a man like us, he was... He was he had like passions like us. He was discouraged like us. He experienced loneliness like us. He was made righteous because he believed in God. And you could be made righteous today. And you can experience friendship and community and restoration in the community of God's people. And I'm going to pray. And as I pray, if there's something within you that says, I need to be made right, I'd encourage you to call on God. You say, I, I don't really know how to do that. Well, then I'd invite you to come forward. I'd love to pray with you. Father.